all here. Good job waking up early. Good to see the room full and uh, excited to talk about the Word of God in the book of Daniel. Unshakable. What's the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you? <laughs> I would love to take a couple hours and just go room, person by person and hear every story. Uh, just relive that great embarrassment. It's under the blood. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I remember one time when... Um, when I was really, it was before Elaine and I were married, and I was really trying to impress her parents, and uh, you know, doing it, trying to do everything perfect. And I had a chance. I, I'm not going to explain the whole situation, but I was had a chance. I was in their car. I used their car for something, and I was very careful. And then when I got back to the place, I locked their keys in their car. <laughs> Very humbling to walk up to them and say, I locked your keys in your car and brings you down a few notches, let me tell you. <laughs> That's just one of the many things in my life, but the only one I'm going to share with you this morning. We're going we're gonna to talk about pride this morning. We're going to talk about humility. Uh, the Bible says in the book of James, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let me take a couple minutes to set this chapter up because I think it'll be helpful as we dive in to Daniel chapter 4 in just a moment. But Stephen Burglass, he's a psychologist at Harvard Medical School and author of the book The Success Syndrome. He says that people who achieve great heights but lack the character, the bedrock character, to sustain them through the stress of that success uh, are headed for disaster. And he, he believes, he says there's four A's that uh, that's, that's going to happen to those people. One is arrogance. Number two is painful feelings of aloneness, aloneness, or destructive adventure seeking, or adultery. And I'm sure all of us could probably point to some stories where we've seen one of those four things uh, in people who have risen to levels of success. But because their character wasn't there to be able to support that, uh, they're only, it's, it's just inevitable. There's going to be disaster, and it's going to be big, and it's going to be public. And today we're going to talk about somebody who reached the very top of the success pile. Not just at their, in their time, but really as you measure history, there's hardly anybody who's been as successful as King Nebuchadnezzar in the world, world's eyes. <clears throat> I mean... This man was, had an incredible kingdom, but it was arrogance. It was arrogance that brought him down. But when he was in that low place, when God brought him down, he finally submitted to the God of heaven. And that's the mercy of God. You know, Nebuchadnezzar has already been a key player in Daniel's life. We've been reading about him in the first few chapters of Daniel. We've already seen several stories involving this famous king, famous worldwide king, still is famous today, these thousands of years later. But this man had it all. I want to just describe to you a couple things. Babylon was a peaceful, strong, and prosperous place, let me tell you. Nebuchadnezzar himself was extremely wealthy and powerful. He was living in a lavish palace. I have a picture here. Uh, you know, the, the hanging gardens, they don't know exactly how it all looked. There's several different artists rendering of it, but the hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the uh, wonders of the ancient world. 
the uh, but not only that, his just the the security of the walls and the the the, the place itself, Babylon. Here's how one historian described it, the city's defenses, and you can put up the next picture too, of their walls. Here's what, how he described it. Babylon was rectangularly shaped city, surrounded by a broad and deep water-filled moat, and then by an intricate system of double walls. The first double wall system encompassed the main city. Its inner wall was 21 feet thick and reinforced with defense towers at 60-foot intervals while the outer wall was 11 feet in width and also had watchtowers. Later, Nebuchadnezzar added another double wall system, an outer wall 25 feet thick and an inner wall 23 feet thick, east of the Euphrates that ran the incredible distance of 17 miles and was wide enough at the top for chariots to pass. The height of the walls is not known, but the Ishtar Gate was 40 feet high, and the walls would have approximated this size. A 40-foot wall would have been a formidable barrier for enemy soldiers. This is, I mean, there's, this is just a strong and powerful kingdom. Babylon was an amazing, amazing place, and there was one man who ruled it all, Nebuchadnezzar. He was the monarch. He was the dictator. He was the man in charge. He was the tyrant. In fact, out of all the world's leaders, Nebuchadnezzar's success ranks among the greatest ever. And he started to know it. <laughs> he started to feel it. He started to get that feeling that it was his ability that got him there. It was his smarts. It was something he had in him that got him to that point. And from his perspective, he was something special. He should have learned the principle that uh, in one of Benjamin Franklin's Proverbs... Benjamin Franklin said, The greatest monarch on the proudest throne is obliged to sit upon his own rear end. <laughs> uh, or, or better yet, let's, let's look at God's proverb, and I have it here for you. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. And there are times where God's going to make sure that that fall and destruction are very severe. And... We're going to see that severity today, but God doesn't do this. I just want to point this out this morning as we launch into this. God doesn't bring people down uh, because of their pride just because he has some kind of a personal vendetta. It's not because God is vindictive. It's, we're going to see that the humbling of this arrogant king, Nebuchadnezzar, was actually God's gracious gift to him. It was God's gracious pursuit of a sinner. There's a man who's a sinner who needs to be saved. And God's going to do what it takes to bring him down so he can get a hold of his life. You know, there's a story this week I heard, a testimony of a couple sat in my office and kind of told me their story. They were completely lost in sin. And um, she had an affair in their marriage and, and he was distraught, but then he lifted himself up and there were so many things going on. But finally one day, both of them, out of their own mind, just incredible spirit with the two of them, now these many years later, both of them just said it was when both of us humbled ourselves before God. Amen. When Amen. we both just realized we were great sinners, both of us just put our faces on the ground and gave it all up, uh, that's when everything began to change. Uh, there's, there was just such a health and a vibrancy in their life. But the Christian life, really, if you think about it, begins with humility. That's where it all begins. It begins with honesty. It begins with humility. And then humility is what marks the Christian life throughout. And that's what God wanted for Nebuchadnezzar. And as we read the first few chapters of Daniel, 
And as I was studying it this week, I realized, you know, God was trying to get a hold of Nebuchadnezzar from the very beginning. You read chapter 1 and Daniel's character there and how he stands out as denying the food and, and all of that. It's like God's sending a message to Nebuchadnezzar. Look at this young man. Look at his character. Look at the visible difference in a person who has, is, who's humbled himself before God. And then, and then in chapter 2, you have this miraculous, we have this dream and then this miraculous interpretation that Daniel gives. And God is saying to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, listen. Listen to what this means. It's because he knows, because he's humbled himself before God. That's why he has uh, the secrets from God. And then, of course, in chapter 3, as we talked about last week, the fiery furnace. Man, another great warning to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, listen. Look at these three men in the fiery furnace, how, how God protected them. Humble yourself before this God. But he was too wrapped up in his own power and his accomplishments, and humility was a long ways away. Do you know anybody like that? Somebody you've been praying for? Far away from humbling themselves before God. As far as you can read it from a human standpoint, it just looks like, man, that, that pride, that arrogance, they'll, I don't know if they'll ever bow their knee to God. Well, we're going to see that God, what God can do to take a person like that and bring them to repentance. And even for those of us who are Christians, and even for those of us that come to church, there are times where God will break us. He will allow bad things to happen. He will allow some things that are very humbling and humiliating even so that he can break us to make, make sure there's a better work that takes place in our life. And there's a political lesson here too, real quick. As the Jews think about it, would read this book of Daniel and they would see Nebuchadnezzar in this big fall in his life, this humiliation and how God just does it behind the scenes. Man, that would just build their faith as they realize the great verse in Proverbs 21, 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. And so if there's any political person right now you're thinking of <laughs> that, that seems so far away, well, let me tell you something. God has a way of gripping them in the night. God has a great way of getting a hold of them and humbling them. So Daniel chapter 4, the, one of the most interesting chapters in the entire Bible. And one of the reasons is because much of it is written by Nebuchadnezzar himself. God gives it to him. Unbelievable. In first person. Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. Let's look at it. Nebuchadnezzar the king, unto all people, nations, and languages. He wants everybody to hear about this, that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. So he sets up his testimony here in verse 2. Uh, by the way, that is a great lead-in to a testimony. You want to, if you ever give your testimony, I thought it was, I thought it'd be good if I show you the signs and the wonder. I thought it'd be good if I show you what God has done in my life, what He's wrought toward me. I love this too. God can reach anybody. Verse three: How great are His signs, and how mighty are His wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion is from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar, in essence, admits right now that my own kingdom, all this Babylon that you see, everything that, I, that we've built here is temporary and it's limited. But God's kingdom is eternal and it lasts from generation to generation. In essence, that is what he is saying. I have discovered that this is just a temporary thing we got going here and God's kingdom is what really matters. It's what really lasts. And by the way, these words right here are the exact same words in Psalm 145 and verse 13. It's 
possible. And I think it is, I think what, ha- what has been happening is that when he's setting up his testimony that he's about to share, he's kind of giving the conclusion at the very beginning. But I think he's been reading the Hebrew Bible. I think Nebuchadnezzar, there was a change that had happened in his heart. I think, I think there was something amazing that God was doing, and he was just quoting what he had been reading. I, verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. Flourishing is a pretty good word. The point is, everything was great. I was feeling fantastic. Verse 5, and I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Again, God knows how to get in the heads of kings. Verse 6, therefore made I a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Then came in the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And I told the dream before them, and they did not make it known unto me the, uh, the interpretation thereof. But at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, And before him, I told the dream, saying, now here we go again, okay? uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he brings in the expert dream interpreters and the astrologers. And they're going to listen to the dream, and then they're going to consult their their dream guides that they have been been written for hundreds of years. And they're going to consult their astrological signs and put the dream together and give the interpretation as they would commonly do. But Nebuchadnezzar gives them the dream and they have nothing. They they did not give the interpretation. Now that's important, uh, I think, phrasing of words here because I think in this case, it's not that they could not, it's that they would not. Because honestly, this is an easy dream. I think almost anybody in this room could have told, <laughs> could have told the king. It's actually pretty easy once we start getting into it. But the problem is, it's very clear that this is very bad news for the king. And so, I think the dream interpreters, to keep their heads on their bodies, deci- decided that I, we, maybe we shouldn't say this one. And so they did not tell him the interpretation the Bible says. It didn't say they could not. But there was one man who Nebuchadnezzar knew would give him the truth, a man he respected. Uh, Even though, and now listen to this, Nebuchadnezzar knew if he brought Daniel in, even though they weren't in full agreement theologically, they weren't in full agreement politically, but he had great respect for this man, Daniel. And he says, Daniel is a man in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. I think it was in verse 8 there. Spirit of the holy gods. Now this could... This could mean that in his limited understanding that the Babylonian gods, you know, were working mightily in Daniel. So maybe that's sort of where his head was. Or maybe Nebuchadnezzar, by using the word holy here, he's referring to the God of the Jews when he says this. Because the word gods there actually could be uh, translated as God, Elohim. So using the word holy and God, it's possible he was saying there is the Jewish God is in this man. But really, what we do know for sure is that Nebuchadnezzar is just expressing in his own way, his observation, that Daniel had the power, had a miraculous power in his life. There was something special. There was something supernatural 
uh, going on inside of Daniel. And Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, they had been in relationship now for probably somewhere around 30 years, most, uh, most scholars think. They'd been together a long time. And someone said about this relationship between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel is the kindness of God to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is the kindness of God to Nebuchadnezzar. And that's what we are to our co-workers. That's what we are to the people who are unsaved in our life. We are the kindness of God. God is extending them mercy, giving them a chance to stay out of hell, giving them a chance to stay out of judgment. And praise the Lord in His kindness. Uh, God gives us honest truth-tellers in our life to help clear the fog, to bring us to the Lord. So Nebuchadnezzar addresses Daniel. Uh, here's how he does it. Verse 9, O Belteshazzar, which again is another name, the name that Nebuchadnezzar had given to Daniel. Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubleth thee, tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen and the interpretation thereof. Thus were the visions of mine head in my bed. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. The tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, the fowls of heaven dwelt in the bows thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and a holy one came down from heaven. Now this is probably a supernatural being uh, with the job of watching. It's an interesting word there, watching. Perhaps some kind of angel who was put in charge of keeping, uh, keeping watch of what was happening. By the way, God's always watching. He has watchers. Verse 14, he cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree and cut off his branches. Shake off his leaves and scatter his fruit. Let the beasts get away from under it and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, in the tender grass of the field. And let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Now to summarize real quick. In this dream, he sees a huge tree. It's fair, it's beautiful. It's a haven for birds and, and, and beasts. They come under it for shade. Then an angel comes and says to cut down this tree. And all the animals sheltering under that tree scatter because a tree has come down. And, and the angel says to leave a band around the stump and let it sit there, that stump. Let it sit there exposed to the elements uh, for seven years, as we'll see here in a moment. And now watch, though, how the, the dream changes from a, from a tree to a human, to a person. In the next verse, verse 16, let his heart be changed from man's and let a beast's heart be given unto him. And let seven times or seven years pass over him. So the, so the dream ends with a man's heart being changed, and changed into a beast's heart for seven years. And then the watcher gives the reason for this dream. Verse 17. And he gives it right there in the dream. The meaning. This matter is by decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones. Listen to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, 
and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the basest of men. That is an incredible, incredible statement. It's no wonder Nebuchadnezzar was scared by this dream. A great tree, then it's cut, cut it down, leave the stump out there. I think he already had a clue of <laughs> maybe what was happening here. And, some, had some, and he, he probably had something to do with this dream. But the angel gives the meaning as plain as day in, in the last part of verse 17 here. And it is the theme of the entire book of Daniel, really. That the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. You know, when we write something, when we're writing something uh, on a paper or sending something to somebody or even in a text, how do you emphasize something? You emphasize it by making it all caps or, or making it bold. But the Bible, when it wants to emphasize something, it uses repetition. And this verse, this piece of this verse, the end of this verse, is repeated three times in this one chapter. 17, verse 25, and then verse 32. That the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. What a powerful truth that all men need to submit to. Every man. God is sovereign. And Nebuchadnezzar, as much as you may hate to admit it, you are just a man. You are just a man. And you are obliged to sit on your own rear end. You are just a man and you need to submit to God just like everybody else. Every person. Charles Spurgeon said, Every man likes to feel that he has the right to do with his own as he pleases. We, like, we love our freedom, right? I do with what I want with what I have. We all like to be little sovereigns, he said. Oh, for a spirit that bows always before the sovereignty of God. You know, as Christians, we might feel, you might be sitting here feeling, I've submitted my whole life to the sovereignty of God. <laughs> But you know sometimes that there are, there are little things that we're holding on to. There are sometimes areas where we still have not let go and let the sovereign God take control of. Guilty. <laughs> things we aren't ready to give up yet. And this story reminds me of the mercy of God to sometimes yank those things out of our hands and make, our, make us miserable until we let go of those things. We're so proud and we want to hold on to those things. And how does God make a change in a heart? He sometimes have to break a, bring a person very low. There's also just a real important theological lesson here real quick. I just want to throw this out there that when we talk about the sovereignty of God, it's an amazing statement right here. The most high ruleth in the kingdom of men. That is a present sovereignty. Meaning God is ruling right now, not just in heaven, but in the kingdom of men, he is ruling on earth currently at this moment. We look around, see what's happening. We, we can say confidently, God is sovereign. God still is in charge. And Israel's God, ultimately, as we, as we think of it from uh, Nebuchadnezzar's point, he's hearing these words. Israel's God is the sovereign God. Stop bowing to these other gods. Israel's God is the sovereign God over all the kingdoms of men. But also then it says, The Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. That is the sovereign God's freedom to give whatever he wants to whomever he pleases. Give authority uh, whenever he wants. But notice that he's giving it. He's giving it to man. 
That is, he's giving a man the free will to make decisions. I can't spend a long time on this point, but God, the Bible teaches both the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. It's not either or. It's both and. And there is not a contradiction in that. A.W. Tozier said, Man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom on his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. It's a powerful statement. And a fascinating study, the sovereignty of God and the, the free will of man. But I want to get back into our story here. But old, so old Nebi here, he's seeing and hearing this dream. And he asked Daniel, give me the meaning, Daniel. Lay it on me. Verse 18, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belteshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof. For as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished. Good, great King James word there, huh? It means, it means stunned. Listen, he was stunned for one hour, it says, and his thoughts troubled him. Daniel's heart here, you can see Daniel's heart for Nebuchadnezzar. You see his compassion. You see the friendship, I think, that they've built over the years. His heart was aching for this king. This was not going to be easy news to break to the king. The king spake and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. Basically meaning, I wish this was for your enemies. I wish the interpretation that I'm about to give was not for you, but it was for your enemies. Daniel starts in a very respectful tone by saying that, I respect this, by the way, about Daniel. Have all the way through here and just get, getting more and more respect for this man. Even with all the paganism and godlessness of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel still had a love and an honor for this king. And Daniel had the great dilemma that any preacher or any soul winner faces. How do I say gently, you're on your way to hell? <laughs> How do I say that kindly? How do I say that respectfully? I love you. I don't want to see you come, harm come to you, but there is a horrible future for you. How do I say that to the people I love? How do I, how do I say that in this, into the people around me? It's a difficult task. And Daniel, for one hour, he's just sitting there. How am I going to deal with this? And he, was, he had to decide, am I going to be obedient to God here and give the truth and do what I'm supposed to do? Or, if I'm, or am I going to hold back? The world's dream interpreters, the people out there giving their messages, they won't tell the truth. They're just going to scratch everybody's ear. In fact, that's how you can often tell the difference. Most often, the harder thing to do is the right thing to do. But this was especially true in this truth-telling situation. Imagine the risk Daniel was taking here, okay? Delivering horrible news to a volatile, unpredictable dictator. You know, by the way, an Eastern monarch like Nebuchadnezzar, he actually had the power of life and death over all his subjects. That he, was, he had that right to kill you. It made no difference. So just, as ner just like you know, a, a nervous but courageous soul winner, <laughs> Daniel steps up to the plate. He just goes for it and lets the chips fall where they may. Verse 20, the, the tree that thou sawest, which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair and the fruit thereof much, and it was meat for all, 
under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation. Verse 22, It is thou, O king. Thou art grown and become strong, for thy greatness has grown and reached unto the heaven, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. He says, It is thou, O king. Reminds me of Nathan the prophet, huh? Thou art the man. Here comes the bad part. Gulp, verse 23. And whereas the king saw a watcher and a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Hew the tree down and destroy it. Yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with the band of iron and brass and the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. Verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come, come upon my Lord, the king, that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. King, mighty monarch, ruler of the known world, you're going to be put out to pasture like an animal for seven years until you know that the God of Israel rules over the kingdom of men and he gives it to whomsoever he will. This may seem harsh that God would do this, but again, this warning right now and even this judgment that's going to take place is a mercy to Nebuchadnezzar to surrender, giving him a chance to surrender to the one true holy God. There must be wholehearted submission to God if there's going to be any real spiritual transformation in a person's life. Verse 26, And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee, after that thou shalt know the heavens do rule. The stump represents the fact that God is going to preserve his kingdom uh, for seven years, and the band around it, God's protection over that stump for those seven years. So then Daniel preaches a little. Verse 27, Wherefore, O king... Let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. If it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility or thy security, you must repent. You must turn from your sins. Turn to righteousness. Show mercy to the poor. Stop this self-serving mindset, king. And God, I just know God will have mercy on you. This is a call to, to come to God. Confess your sins. He can change you. Nebuchadnezzar had been a harsh king, unjust to the people below him, the poor people. God wanted to see genuine repentance. Here's what happens after the dream, verse 28. And this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. So notice how God gives him a year to change course and repent. 12 months he gives him before anything happens. But one day as he's walking in his immaculate palace of Babylon, verse 30, the king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Whoo, arrogance. After all the warnings, you went right back to it. it. It was his weakness, arrogance. We all have pride this morning. We may not have, we may not kill people. We may not commit adultery. We may not steal, but we get proud that we have not done those things. (laughs) Oh, we have pride. We start to think we're really something special. But pride is wicked and it is detestable to God. It is the clay taking credit for becoming a pot. It is the paintbrush taking credit for the masterpiece. It is a human taking credit for something that God has done. Oh, God, keep us from the heart of pride. 
Well, God needed to stay faithful to his word, so he did exactly what he said. Verse 31, while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, thy kingdom is departed from thee. They shall drive thee from men, thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, they shall make thee eat grass. Seven times shall pass over thee until thou know that the Most High ruleth over the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men, did eat grass as oxen, his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. God spoke while the word was in his mouth. God is long-suffering to people. He waits and waits and waits and waits and waits. But when the time comes for God to act, there is no delay. God strikes Nebuchadnezzar with insanity. Ironic here, I think, because ultimately pride is really insanity. It's just, pride is stupid when you realize who's really in charge. And just as the dream predicted, he was sent outside on one of the king's farms. Uh, His mind goes crazy. He thought he was an animal. And it's likely that Daniel took care of the matters of state while he was out there. People use this story to doubt the book of Daniel. They dismiss it. But it's interesting. There is no historical record of of governmental activity in Babylon between the years 582 B.C. and 575 B.C. This is remarkable because, you know, leaders back then, they loved to talk about their achievements. And people talk about the ridiculousness of this story to discredit the book of Daniel. But let me tell you something. With all that we know about people's psychological problems, this is nothing. This is nothing. This should not shock us at all. I watched somebody put on a clip the other day of this show called, I think it's called My Strange Addictions or something like that. A, a lady was spraying aerosol things in her mouth. It was disgusting me. I just turned this off. I can't even, I can't even, my stomach can't take even looking at this thing. And I, I'm told there are just worse things that people are addicted to. Let me tell you something. There are several documented accounts of insanity and in actually this particular situation where somebody thinks they're a, an ox or thinks they're a cow. And there's actually a name for it, boanthropy. <clears throat> They're imagining themselves, and people spend all day outside. They drink from puddles. This happens. They're picking up chunks of grass to eat, and they eat, eat it. Caregivers have to bathe them and care for them. This happens. And um, <laughs> Marina, some of your stories, I remember some, not from you, but from, <laughs> from your work, from your work, yeah. Uh, anyway, we have no problem believing that God struck Nebuchadnezzar with boanthropy. A humiliating judgment that God would send on somebody. But God was sending a message loud and clear. Anybody who would read this or hear about this, without God, we are nothing. Without God, humans descend to the level of animals. We cannot be saved in our own strength. We cannot trust our own wisdom to even navigate through this life. Pride, self-sufficiency is just insanity. It is insanity. Pride is insanity. And that's the point. Nebuchadnezzar got the point after seven years. Verse 34, 35 tells us that. I, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes into heaven. Mine understanding returned unto me and blessed. I blessed the Most High. I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? Wow. And last, let's just read these last two verses. At the same time, my reason returned unto me. And for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me. My counselors, my Lord sought unto me and I was established in my kingdom. 
and excellent majesty was added unto me. Verse 37, my favorite, now. Listen to this. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways are his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. There was a marked difference in Nebuchadnezzar between the then and the now. Pre-insanity days and post-insanity days. This man was a transformed man, in my opinion. And this is what God wants to do in everyone's lives. Humility is the first step to change. Humility is the first step to transformation. God can only work with a soft piece of clay. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We don't get the grace of God until we humble ourselves before him. And when we do humble ourselves, oh, he pours out that grace. And he transforms a life. And the whole story just reminds me of somebody who's hit rock bottom, finally admits that they need the grace of God. As I was studying this, I couldn't help but think, sorry if I'm calling you out wrongly here, but uh, Brother Jeff Ridge, I remember your testimony. And I remember you even just saying, I just felt like I was at the bottom, and then I made a call to my, my father-in-law. At that call was his moment of humility. And that's where it all began. Imagine where, and he's even said, I can't even imagine where the Ridge family or anybody would be had I not made that call. Had I not made that call. What the humility, humility is where it all begins. It's where everything begins. Humility is the first step. What do you need to do to humbly surrender to the Lord? What do you need to do? Where, what area would, would you need to just bow before the Lord and, and, and cause to yield to whatever God may say so that we can, get, we can get to the next level? What am I holding on to that I need to give up? Oh, God, help us to soften our hearts. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for this amazing true account of a person, Lord, who was brought very low so that he could be brought back up very high. Lord, thank you for your, your mercy to even allow us, Lord, that you would even get involved in our life and cause us, uh, Lord, to, uh, to know that we need to humble ourselves. Oh, God, help us to humble so that, Lord, we can see your great work in our life and your grace just working. We thank you and honor you and praise you today because you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Yeah. Amen. 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 Thank you, everybody. Lord bless you.